That very colorful music you just heard is the beginning of a piece called Comes Autumn Time by Leo Sowerby, performed on the organ by David Schrader. It's part of our new release for July 2021 on CD Records, organ music of Frank Furco and Leo Sowerby. And as those of you who've listened to these podcasts before know, every time we have a new release on Sadie Records, we have a new classical Chicago podcast. This is episode number 45. I'm Jim Ginsburg, founder and president of Sadie Records, and my guest is David Schrader, who performs this double-disc album of organ music by two Chicago composers, Frank Furco and Leo Sowerby. Hi, David. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing terrific. I assume most listeners will be very familiar with you, David, since you are the most prolific Sadie Records artist of all time. <laughs> Perseverance will always pave the way. It's been a pleasure and I've many great things to say about recording for Sadie, so I'm really excited about this particular release. Well, so am I. And this, in fact, marks your 26th album with Sadie as a soloist, chamber musician, or a continual player. David, you were born in Chicago, but were actually raised in your younger years in Denver. Is that right? Well, in a combination of Memphis, Cleveland, and Denver. My dad worked for New York Life, and he got transferred a lot. And then you came to Indiana University for your music education. Is that right? Just for graduate school. I was an undergrad at University of Colorado Boulder. When did you finally return to Chicago, and why? Well, I had run out of on-campus things to do at Indiana University, and it was time to go find a job. And I came to Church of the Ascension. And that's how I came to be in Chicago. I knew immediately that it would require a lot of freelance work, too, because the church didn't really pay much. But they provided full medical dental benefits when I came on a salary that usually doesn't provide stuff like that. And in fact, you were organist at Church of the Ascension for how many years? 35. That's interesting. That's exactly the same number of years Leo Sowerby was at St. James. St. James. I didn't know that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Nice coincidence. What year was that that you came back to Chicago? It was January 4th of 1980. I rolled into town and played my first service on Feast of the Epiphany, which is January 6th. Then I began to find work with other ensembles, most notably the Chicago Symphony and Music of the Baroque. Yeah, I was just going to ask you to describe a little bit your early career in Chicago, because you were with so many groups. Well, I was in the habit of taking every job that came my way for a long time, and part of that was just to stay afloat. Yeah, Music of the Baroque was the first job I had, but the big break was in the fall of 81. I'd sent a letter to George Schulte. This is kind of funny, uh, because I asked a member of the symphony chorus how to address him, and I had a letter of recommendation from Anthony Newman, who had had an interesting encounter with him a few years before. And so I got a call out of the blue from the Chicago Symphony personnel manager saying, we're doing Haydn creation, can you read figured bass? And I said, yes. So I was hired without audition to do that. I did the repetiteur work and did the recording and wound up doing it actually twice, once in 1981 and then once I think in 1991 too with a whole different set of soloists, but they were doing a new edition by a, an old professor of mine at Indiana University. That's one reason Schulte wanted to do it again. But that's how it all came to, and then gigs started to come on basis of reputation, as so much of it does in music profession. 
It must have been interesting working with the different groups because obviously the approach to this repertoire with George Schulte and the CSO would be very different from what you were doing with a group like, say, the City Music. Oh, for sure. Radically different approaches, but I found that in any situation, the best thing you could do is your best work and have to concentrate. I was playing once at the Ravinia Festival with a quite well-known violinist who was asking me to do some things that basically went against the grain, but he was in charge, and technically, you're paid for your time. The only time you get to exercise your viewpoint is if you're a conductor or a concertmaster. Or soloist, no? Yeah, well, sometimes. Um, <laughs> some conductors want to govern soloists more than others do. Oh, dear. I remember I played in 1985 a pooling concerto with the Milwaukee Symphony, and... I didn't mean to do this, but I wound up locking horns with the conductor over the registrations. The registrations in there are by Maurice Durfley, and I've always taken them as gospel, and I think they sound best, too. But we locked horns for a minute, and it turned out actually to be a really good performance. The, the guy was an expert in Elgar and also in French music. Interesting. I noticed you didn't name the conductor. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I will leave that. Uh, for those who don't know, City Music was an early period instrument group in Chicago. It's had many successors since, some of which have recorded for CD, like Baroque Band and Ars Antigua. Of course, you've been involved in all of those. Yeah, that's correct. I'm willing to jump from one ship to another. It is too bad about City Music because I will say that Elaine Scott Banks was the most talented conductor of classical repertoire of anybody I've ever heard, right back to Carl Böhm. Wow, that's quite a statement. You know, a totally different style from Böhm, but I swear she had Mozart's phone number. <laughs> she had an unbelievable way with Mozart, and City Music for at least two years had a separate Mozart series. The main stage series had been very successful, and then they branched off into a Mozart series where we would explore things like the last Masonic cantata. Actually, a really beautiful piece. And I recall you playing some very lovely concertos and forte piano in that. Yes, that I did. Well, in fact, uh, your wife frequently graced city music, too. Patrice and Scotty were a great team. We're speaking, of course, of Sadie Records artist and, yes, my wife of 10 years now, Patrice Michaels. And of course, even before Sadie Records was launched at the end of the 1980s and began recording you at the very beginning of the 1990s, you had right. been making other recordings, including with the Chicago Symphony. What was that like? Actually, I found it in its own way relaxing. I knew the standard was very high, but Schulte turned out to be a very avuncular kind of guy. If he was interested in you, he was willing to visit the experience he had with Toscanini on you. He believed in young talent, and based on, for instance, my continual playing for the Haydn creation, he engaged me as a guest soloist. So that's how I made my solo debut with Symphony in 1983. Actually, that was also the Chicago premiere of the Corleano Clarinet Concerto. All of these are for London Decca. And then I did the Matthew Passion in 1988. Then since then, the Missus Solemnis with Daniel Barenboim, then, on the first CSO Resound recording, I played the organ part in the glagolitic mass of Janáček. And, of course, your work with Sadie has really run the gamut. You made some early recordings on both the harpsichord and organ of Baroque composers Padre Antonio Soler and, of course, Johann Sebastian Bach for the organ. 
many chamber music recordings, including with the Rembrandt chamber players. Yes, indeed. And work with the Chicago Baroque Ensemble. Also an organ recording of music of Franck and Dupre. A lot of work with violinist Rachel Barden-Pine in various guises, including as part of your trio with her, Trio Settecento. In fact, when we did the CD recording of Handel Sonatas, that was the first time we played together at least in any kind of formal circumstances. And so we all look back fondly on those sessions as the beginning of Trio Settecento. Right, and that, of course, is with uh, John Mark Rosendahl in the role either as cellist or playing viola da gamba in that group. Right. And that's actually one of the things I'm proudest of as president of Sadie Records is that one of our albums actually resulted in the creation of one of the finest period instrument chamber groups in the country, if not the world. (laughs) Well, much to be proud of and a lot for us to be grateful for. (laughs) And before we move on to this album, we mentioned your tenure at Church of the Ascension as organist there. What did your duties there entail? Well, concerted music was necessary. I'd accompany the choir. I had to play voluntaries before and after two masses a day. And until much later, I played every Sunday night for Evensong and Benediction services. And within... Whatever I had to do, I was allowed basically complete stylistic freedom. I'm not making this up. I played the Ligative Volumina there in the (laughs) early 80s. It was a nice meditative prelude. (laughs) But the congregation were so open-minded that the most negative comment I got was, you know, I didn't like that at all, but I appreciate your introducing me to it. Oh, that is nice. So anyway, yeah, I played services, and then I was obligated to improvise. And actually, I think it is not unfair to say that many people join that congregation specifically to hear those improvisations. Well, sometimes, yes. The improvs are like watercolors. They just have to exist right in the moment. And if they don't, you just cover them up like a bad cake. (laughs) Jerry Hancock, who is a really well-known practitioner of improvisation, once said, if you do something that's really hideous, make sure you repeat it at a discreet interval. And there was a ring of truth to that. They talk about Franz Liszt in a master class giving a demonstration, and he botched a note on the way down an arpeggio. Rather than do anything out of time, he simply bounded off that note in its key and then came back to the right key again with the idea that not so much that he has made a mistake, he has shown you how to get out of one. Awesome. Yeah. Well, to move on to the program at hand, as I mentioned, this is a double disc at the price of a single CD, of course. And we put the music of Frank Furco actually first. So this is CD number one. I guess I should say a a few words about Frank. He got his doctorate in music from Northwestern University and actually stayed in Chicago, actually was music librarian at Northwestern for a while. He is the recipient of numerous ASCAP awards, also multiple composer fellowships from the Illinois Arts Council. His music has been recorded on over 20 different compact discs, including Sadie's recording of his absolute masterpiece of a Stabat Mater with the group then known as His Majesty's Clarks, now called Bella Voce. And I'm proud to say that Frank, while he was in Chicago, he's no longer living here now, but while he was, he was actually my neighbor here in the Edgewater neighborhood. That's right, yes. Yeah, he lived on Carmen. That's right. How did you get to know Frank and his music, David? Gosh, this is kind of funny, but I first read about Frank Furco 
in the Windy City Times, which you know is a newspaper for the gay community. And Frank had been commissioned by the Windy City Gay Chorus, then directed by Richard Guerin, for a piece for male chorus and four harps. It was flashy and theatrical, but I first thought, who is this? And then it turned out he had been organist choir master down at St. Paul and the Redeemer Church after Tom Wickman, several years, I think. And anyway, we came to know each other in musicals and social circles. And the idea of this two-CD project actually came together when Frank and I ran into each other at an AGO convention four years ago. Excellent. For this recording, we actually went out of Chicago to House of Hope Presbyterian Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. Can you explain why that was the perfect place to record? Well, I knew at some point or another that Frank had had a close association with a lot of musical communities in the Twin Cities, several notable choral groups. We both knew the collection of organs that House of Hope had when we thought, gee, could we see if Jim is interested in this project of recording your organ music? Because we'd run into each other totally by chance on 4th of July, 2016. We thought we'd have dinner together, and we hatched the idea of recording his organ music, which is barely represented at all. These are all world premier recordings, are they not? Uh, yes, they are, which amazes me, because like Sowerby, I think Frank is best known as... A choral composer. Compo- well, yeah. as a choral, but also he's not unknown, uh, certainly, uh, as an organ composer. No, I mean, as a player, too. Well, on these podcasts, we always present excerpts, usually just a few in the two to four minute range. But in this case, there's such a variety of music that we're going to go with shorter but more multiple excerpts. And let's start with the opening piece on this album, which is from Music for Elizabeth Chapel. And it's the one piece that's actually played on the instrument it was specifically written for. What would you say about the Dan Jagel or the Jagel Opus 41 that lives in the Elizabeth Chapel of House of Hope? It's ideal for its room. It's a small side chapel. For years, I've erroneously called it the St. Elizabeth Chapel, but that's the tune, not the room. I've known Dan for a long time. I've recorded on two other organs by Dan for Sadie Records. And in fact, I'm sitting in my living room with a small two-stop Dan Jekyll organ. It's not to say that I'm politically motivated or anything, but coincidence has allowed me access to these great instruments. In the case of the Elizabeth Chapel, one of the donors commissioned the piece from Frank for the dedication recital. And yet the piece had never been recorded. I know the organist there has played it several times, but the organ is ideal for the room, not too large. And Frank wrote very imaginatively with specific knowledge of it, which is a nice thing. Glad you mentioned that. And I should note that most of Frank's music is in the form of theme and variations. There's actually three movements to this piece, and that's true of the first two pieces. The first movement of the Music for Elizabeth Chapel is a Leone set of chorale variations, and then St. Elizabeth, based on Crusader's hymn, which is another set of chorale variations, and then it does end with a Toccata and Fugue. But the other thing about Frank's variations is they're so wide-ranging and not necessarily in forms you would always expect to hear on the organ. For example, the excerpt we're going to hear, one of the St. Elizabeth variations, is actually in the form of a waltz. What would you want to say about these variations before we play it? 
I agree with you that they're incredibly wide-ranging. Some of them are very exquisite in an intellectual way, like the one that is the contrary canon. You think of the music of Bach, but Frank has his own way of working with it. And then Frank also has, not too frequently used, but a very sensitive draw to minimalism. And we've got one movement of the Symphony Brev, and then the Toccata on St. Anne. Then, to an extent, really, the last variation of Leone. Well, here's a taste of one of these. And again, one of these forms, we pick variations in very different forms to sample. But this one, as I mentioned, is a waltz. And we'll hear more of this later, too. Shows a bit of Frank's sense of humor. Definitely. <laughs> so here is an excerpt from St. Elizabeth, the second movement of Music for Elizabeth Chapel, performed by David Schrader on the instrument it was written for, instrument by Dan Jekyll in the House of Hope Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. So we just heard a short excerpt from St. Elizabeth, the second movement of Frank Furco's Music for Elizabeth Chapel, the chapel at the House of Hope Presbyterian Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. This was actually the piece written for the organ's dedication. The organ is the Opus 41 of the Jekyll Organ Company. It's relatively small, 19 ranks. I should ask, when a piece is written for a specific instrument, does that take any decisions out of the player's hand? Well, in this case, it was very easy to follow Frank's instructions because this was the specific organ. But in the case of the Vinicreator variations, it's recorded on a fisk, but a very different fisk than the one it was written for. But I have the good fortune of knowing both organs very well. And so I could translate and in some cases paraphrase the instructions Frank left for the dedicatee of the Vinicreator. So in a way, my hands are tied in this case, but delightfully so. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned the Fisk, because in fact, that's what we're moving to now. All but two of the Furco pieces are played on the big organ at House of Hope, and this is a 93-rank instrument built in 1979 by C.B. Fisk. It's their Opus 78. Fisk himself, I believe, has referred to this instrument as his own magnum opus. How would you describe it and its sound in the House of Hope Sanctuary? It's a wonderful combination of weight, brilliance, and Fisk himself once said that humankind craves a grand sound. And in whatever rooms he built organs in, Fisk thought immediately of the characteristics of the room and the European traditions that might inspire him. And by fusing all of that, he created a thing that I think is very aptly called one form of the American classic organ. And in fact, I've heard Mike Barone, 
from Pipe Dreams has described it as an organ that will sound exactly like its player. You can make it sound like a mediocre, out-of-tune organ by you-know-who, and that could be anybody, <laughs> on a Sunday morning, or you could make it sound like a Hook and Hastings from 19th century Boston, or like a Cave Cole. Fisk did a really ingenious thing in when he built his main backbone of the organ, the planum, is that he made it in such a way that it could be accompanied by stops that would shift its nationality in a way. You could have solid German contrapuntal style, or you can also have something a little bit more ear-boggling. You mentioned that this was written originally for a smaller Fisk organ. How do you translate pieces written for one instrument to another and find the right colors and balances, etc.? Sometimes you can hit the nail right on the head. But there are other times when, and this was so wonderful because we had Frank at the sessions, if I needed to make a compromise, I could always ask him. And a good organist, I think, has an instinct for how to adapt a sound that was requested with something I think that will communicate the composer's intent. A good example of this was Messian. When he played in Germany, which he did on occasion, he would register entirely different sounds than he did in France. So he had specific ideas, and he was willing to help you in his scores by being as specific as possible, but he was the first one to make changes when he felt they were warranted. I was going to say, it was also very helpful to me to have Frank at the sessions. And, oh, by all and, means. Yep. Although it's interesting, he's very flexible. If I questioned something, if I said, well, you know, I'm not sure this sounds quite right to me, he'd be willing to entertain that and come up with other ideas. I would echo you in that. I think Frankie is a very friendly composer. It reminds me, actually, of a story I heard from my undergraduate piano teacher about his teacher, Bella Bartok. Often, you know, Bartok was a very scrupulous marker of scores, but when somebody would vary from his interpretation, Mr. Bull would tell me that Bartok's invariable response was, you know, it wasn't exactly what I had in mind, but I rather like it. Well, the next piece we're going to hear an excerpt from is this Variations on Veni Creator Spiritus. So it's another variation format. I'd say in some ways a bigger piece than the variation pieces. Well, of course, it's on a much bigger instrument. How is Frank's approach to variations different in this piece than in the Elizabeth Chapel piece? I think you're right. It seems to be for a bigger space. And that's the case of the organ where it was originally intended at St. Chrysostom's Episcopal Church in Chicago. It seats about 400 people. I think House of Hope seats upwards 800. Anyway, what you can do is take certain sounds and amplify them. I do think, as you commented, that the variations on Veni Creator are less intimate. I don't know how Frank did it, but he wrote a more intimate style of music for the Elizabeth Chapel. But for St. Chrysostom's, you kind of say he wrote big church music there. And I think part of it is the incredible influence that the French had on Gregorian chant. Frank absorbs that really well into his style. There's a basic Gallican personality to Frank, and it has nothing to do with his originality at all. But Frank shares a trait with Ned Roram, or at least this is a description of a trait he got from Ned Roram. And Ned Roram categorizes everything in terms of, is it German or is it French? For example, cats are French, dogs are German. <laughs> Japanese people are French, Chinese people are German, <laughs> and, and Frank is definitely French. But you're right about his sense of humor, that you have that melting canon 
partway through the variations. And then you have a very, very urbane kind of shuffle down Fifth Avenue in the next movement. He makes it work. It doesn't sound incongruous. And I've always thought that was the trait of a good composer, is someone who can make things that are supposed to be incongruous not sound like it. Well, great point. Uh, we're actually going to hear the end of the piece. This is the one longer excerpt on okay. the Furco side of the album. This is the big toccata that ends the piece, and it really is a big sound. Anything you want to say to set this up? Not really, except for the fact that I'm not kinesthetic, but I come close to it when I hear Frank's arpeggios. Wow. Well, um, you know, they're, they're just, it's like just enough garlic in the dish. <laughs> well, let's hear that then. So here is the final toccata from Frank Furco's Variations on Veni Creator Spiritus, played on the big Fisk organ at House of Hope Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, by, of course, David Schrader. That's quite a sound, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> that was the final toccata from Frank Furco's Variations on Veni Creator Spiritus. It's on a new album by David Schrader on Sadie Records, organ music by Frank Furco and Leo Sowerby, a double disc actually, 
If you like what you're hearing, and I certainly hope you do, you can find the album when it's released on July 9th on sadierecords.org. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org as a physical CD, which, of course, you can also buy on Amazon or Archive Music. It'll also be available as a download, of course, on iTunes and on all the streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music. Or if you go for high-end audio, places like Primephonic and Idagio, it will be everywhere once we hit that what we call street date, July 9th. And so I hope you'll be looking out for it, especially after listening to this. Uh, let's have some contrast now. The next piece on the album is much quieter, but yet another variation format, this time a chaconne. Uh, it's a piece titled Angels. And just to give you yet another flavor of Furco, we're going to hear the penultimate variation, which is actually in the form of a tango. What would you like to say about this, David? Well, this is another facet of Frank's sense of humor. And in this case, it's sublime. When I think of this tango in the middle of what is really basically a very out-there spiritual kind of piece, superbly constructed, but when I think of the tango, I think of the naive astonishment, say, of the 18th century St. Barnabas who juggled for Our Lady. And you don't think of Brazilian carnival when you hear this, but you think of another aspect of wow. The piece is basically all very meditative. Well, let's hear that then. This is the tango variation from Angels, Chacon for Organ by Frank Furco, as performed by David Schrader. That mysterious tango you just heard is part of a chaconne called Angels by composer Frank Furco on this album of organ music of Furco. And later on, we'll hear organ music of Leo Sowerby as well, as performed by David Schrader, my guest on this Classical Chicago podcast. And in fact, the next piece on the album is a piece that's actually dedicated to you, the Symphonie Breve. How did this come about? I heard Frank playing a noontime recital at Christ Church Cathedral in Indianapolis. And he played the Toccata from the symphony. Afterwards, I went up and greeted him and said that, you know, I'd be very interested in getting a copy of that piece. And he gave me a copy of it. And one thing, before the days of Finale and Sibelius and all the different composition programs, Frank had maybe the most beautiful manuscript panned I've ever seen of any composer. This includes the Renaissance. And I was very sad the day that he went over to the computer, but it's probably got work done a lot faster. But anyway, I was attracted just by the look of the score. And so I learned the piece, and I played it in several concerts, and Frank was kind enough to dedicate it to me. 
Oh, wonderful. The piece is in three movements. First movement's marked Andante, second very fast, comma lightly, and the third is simply called Chorale. What would you say about the piece, and particularly why does it have a French title? Again, I think this is Frank's Frankophile temperament. It's as American as apple pie, but <laughs> I think he's moved by things French. Also, when you think of a large-scale organ piece, even a miniature large-scale organ piece like this, you don't think of a sonata so much, you think of a symphony. In the great line of French symphonies, all started off by the Franck Grand Pièce Symphonique, and then the symphonies of Vidor and Vierne and Dupré, and it represents a mountain of sound that you can't actually call a sonata. It seems a little bit overbearing. But that whole French tradition is very nicely infused in Frank's language. And to back up what you were saying about that sound, we're going to hear the very chromatic ending of the first movement. Almost sounds like something you'd hear in the Batman TV series, if you know what I mean. Right, yes. <laughs> I remember those triads. Well, let's let people hear that then. Here is the end of the first movement, the Andante, from Frank Furco's Symphony Breve, as performed by its dedicatee, David Schrader. So that was the end of the first moment of Frank Furco's three-movement Symphony Breve, as performed by David Schrader, to whom Furco dedicated the piece, performing on the Fisk organ at the House of Hope Presbyterian Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, where we went to make this recording. Unfortunately, we don't have time to play every piece on the album, so if there's anything you want to say about the shortest piece, this is the Missa Ecclesia Communion, which was apparently originally planned as part of a Mass, but the arrest of the Mass never got written. Yeah, and as such, this has turned into a wonderfully evocative piece, equally appropriate for concert or liturgy. It's a multi-purpose character piece, but I think you, know, you can hear Abbas Hildegard back in the Middle Ages still pushing Frank's thoughts. An interesting aspect of Furco's music is that many of his compositions are based on his research into the life and music and writings of the 12th century Abbas Hildegard von Bingen. And these are some of the pieces that have probably attracted him the widest audience, including his large organ piece, the Hildegard organ cycle, as well as his choral piece, the Hildegard motets. I heard part of his recording sessions for the Hildegard cycle, like a mouse in the wall. I didn't realize it was in progress, but uh, this was at St. Alphonsus Church in Chicago, which has quite a good organ and amazing acoustic. And I realized what the piece was without even knowing what was going on at that point. Excellent. Well, we're going to move on to the next piece on the album now, which is the Variations on a Hungarian Folk Tune, very short variations piece. And this one you chose to play 
on yet another instrument. The oldest instrument that we'll hear on this album actually was constructed in France in 1878 by Joseph Merklin and much later moved to House of Hope Church in St. Paul. It also lives in the sanctuary, like the big Fisk organ. Why did you choose this instrument for Furco's variations on a Hungarian folk tune? Well, first of all, I wanted to make sure that I used it since I had the option of using Elizabeth Chapel, kind of by obligation, and then recording mini pieces on the back organ. I had played a recital many years before where I really enjoyed the front organ, and I thought we should pick something short, but that's like a choir organ, and as such, it's kind of a 19th, 20th century complement to the continental practice of having the big organ up in the gallery of the cathedral and then the choir organ in the front. And I just wanted to do a piece on it. It's got a delightful sound. It's not a large instrument, but very expressive. And when you go to a church that has four organs, well, you know, you should at least try to use three of them. <laughs> it is a very different but enjoyable sound. In fact, what would you want to say about the piece itself? It doesn't remind me of anything in particular except what it is. The tune is unique. And you could interpret the piece as being an excellent didactic piece for a beginner, but it also exists on a level of a witty and charming set of variations. And you know, in that respect, it's like the Bartok microcosmos, that you have pieces that are written for instruction, but they're also written to be aesthetically pleasing. Since the variations in this piece are so short, I think what we'll do so that people can hear how they contrast, we'll play that tune that you mentioned, the opening theme and the first two variations. So here is the first three sections of variations on a Hungarian folk tune by Frank Verko as performed on the 1878 French organ that now lives in Minnesota by David Schrader. We just heard the theme and first two variations of Frank Furco's Variations on a Hungarian Folk Tune, performed on a 13-rank small organ at the House of Hope Presbyterian Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, instrument originally from France. Now we'll come back to the Big Fisk organ, however, for the last two pieces on the Furco half of this album. And the next one is the piece which definitely has the coolest name, Tired Old Nun. <laughs> It also comes with a rather long subtitle, Variations on a Gregorian Theme for Organ Pedals. Let me ask you, David, how do you approach a piece that's written specifically for the pedals, and how do you get such a range of sound out of the pedals? 
gosh, I mean, anything that's on a keyboard of a pipe organ that is a manual can be coupled down to the pedal in most cases. But most of the time, and especially on the Fisk at House of Hope, you have such a wide variety of stops to choose from that the pedal can be on its own, independent as we say. But sometimes it's fun to couple something down from a manual. And in fact, I believe I did this in at least one variation. Then I made the dynamic level gain weight as time went on. Are there many such pieces for pedal alone? Yes, indeed. There's a big repertoire. And in fact, there's a wonderful British organist named Sir George Thalban Ball, who wrote a set of variations on the 24th Paganini Caprice for pedal. My friend McNeil Robinson composed a set of pedal etudes. Virgil Fox, in one of his big parade pieces, was by a Chicago composer named Wilhelm Mittelschulte, and is called Perpetuo Mobile. Were there particular challenges to this pedal piece? Actually, yes. One, I have to admit, is that it's harder for me because I'm not as young as I used to be, and I don't have quite as much flexibility in my ankles. Many times you have to cover double notes with one foot, and so I just have to make sure my aim is more careful and my approach is more deliberate. Well, despite its title, although it does start out fairly slow and soft, but by the end of the piece, our nun has got her dancing shoes on as the final variation is actually a boogie-woogie. Is this as much fun to play as it is to hear? It is. It's the last thing you expected to hear in a church. Especially a piece based on a Gregorian theme, and I think this is yet another example of Frank's sense of humor. Absolutely, and ingenuity in putting the two together. Well, let's hear that then. This is the final variation, The Boogie, from Frank Furco's Tired Old Nun, performed by David Schrader. That was fun, wasn't it? That was from a piece titled Tired Old Nun. That was the final variation, which was indeed in the form of a boogie. boogie she wasn't so tired then. Apparently not. And boogieing on those organ pedals, because it's a piece for pedals, was David Schrader on his new album of music of Frank Furco and Leo Sowerby. And we'll be getting to the Leo Sowerby half of the album. It's actually a double disc in a moment, but there's one more piece on the Furco side, which is another piece written for an organ dedication, actually titled Mass for Dedication. How would you describe this piece, David? It's a suite of liturgical pieces, and it was indeed written for the dedication of the organ of Christ Church Winnetka. And so it has 
selected parts of a mass, and it's much more, say, medieval in its outlook than the uniformity brought in the Renaissance. So you don't have a curie in this mass, but you do have an introit or entrance. You have an offertory, which often you would have in a quote-unquote organ mass. Uh, those were frequent before Vatican II. Then, in a way of tying things together, he ends it up with a traditional, but furco traditional, four-voice fugue with quite a devil of a pedal part. It doesn't draw too much attention to itself, but toward the end, I always felt rather extended. I'm so glad you mentioned the fugue, because that, in fact, is the part we're going to hear, at least the beginning of it. And yes, I couldn't leave this half of the album without a good old-fashioned four-voice fugue. So here is the opening of the fugue finale of Frank Furco's Mass for Dedication. Once again, David Schrader. You just heard the beginning of the finale of Frank Furco's Mass for Dedication for Organ, as performed by David Schrader on the Big Fisk Organ at the House of Hope Presbyterian Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. Now that we've heard excerpts of almost every piece on the Furco side of this program of music of Furco and Leo Sowerby, do you have any final thoughts on Furco and what people should take away from hearing all these pieces? People should enjoy the wonderful worlds that Frank's compositions can allow you to enter. For those who know his choral music, it's nice to have a way of getting people familiar with Frank's organ music. I hope that his time will permit him to compose more. So as mentioned earlier, this is a double disc, although we're selling it at a single CD price. The first CD is music of Frank Furco. The second CD, recorded back here in Chicago, is music of great Chicago composer Leo Sowerby. And in fact, this album forms part of our summer of Sowerby, as we're calling it, on Sadie Records. This album is being released in July, specifically on July 9th. The albums being released on either side of it in June and August also contain music of Sowerby. In fact, the August release is an all-Sowerby album. And probably people who are familiar with Sadie Records are familiar with Leo Sowerby because we've been championing his music for quite a while. But as a refresher, I would argue that Leo Sowerby is the most important composer, at least of the past, associated with Chicago. He was born in Grand Rapids, but came to Chicago as a young man to study and made quite an impression. In fact, the Chicago Symphony premiered his violin concerto in 1913 when he was only 17 years old. He was awarded the Rome Prize, the inaugural Rome Prize, in 1921, 
He was organist and choir master at St. James Episcopal Church, later cathedral, for 35 years, beginning in 1927. He also taught at the American Conservatory in Chicago. In the 1920s and 30s, he was essentially the composer-in-residence for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra under Frederick Stock, and not only Chicago, but he was actually the American composer most often programmed by American orchestras in those years all over the country, and he also won the Pulitzer Prize in 1946 for his cantata, The Canticle of the Sun, which, incidentally, you can find on Sadie Records with the Grand Park Orchestra and Chorus. And of course, David Trader, my guest on this podcast, you have played Sowerby for us before. The very first album we recorded with Chicago's great summer orchestra, the Grand Park Orchestra, included Sowerby's concert piece for organ and orchestra. That's correct. The piece was new to me at the time, but the very opening clarinet solo, along with the rippling figures of the organ, I was in trance. So Sadie's history with Sowerby also includes a number of his orchestral works, which, like I said, were very popular in the 20s and 30s. We brought a lot of those back to life with recordings with the great Chicago conductor Paul Freeman, including his second symphony as performed by the Chicago Sinfonietta. And as I mentioned, our June release includes Sowerby's spectacular piano trio. Earlier Sowerby recordings on Sadie Records featured his less familiar music. We're finally presenting some of the music Sowerby is best known for. He's best known as a composer for chorus and as an organ composer. What is your history with performing Sowerby's music, David? Exactly as you described it. I met him through the Episcopal Church and in fact was relatively unaware as a really young kid that he'd written much else. At the time, that is when I was in my late teens, early 20s, Sowerby was not so much revered. It's often the fate of composer or an artist takes his death to reassess interest in him, but certainly I knew of Leo Sowerby's music, and then later when I had church positions, I experienced it in person, usually in the form of service music, meaning Magnificat and Numptimidus or morning prayer anthems, and also the regular anthems. And for a long time, he was known as the dean of church musicians in America. Absolutely. What would you say his hallmarks are as an organ composer? Gosh, thorough knowledge of the instrument. Not a joke, but a funny incident. He was at the organ at St. James Cathedral in a day when a cousin of mine was on the altar guild, and it was customary that she would bring him a cup of tea on Saturday afternoon while he was rehearsing for the next day's services. And she found him in a very frustrated state. She said, Dr. Sowerby, what's wrong? And he says, oh, it's this music, you know, I can't play it. <laughs> and he was referring to his own music. <laughs> when he wrote the symphony, one of the organists that he had in mind was the great Canadian organist Linwood Farnham. Linwood Farnham was gifted enough that when Marcel Dupre heard him, he asked if he could come to the United States and study with him. Wow. Anyhow, what are his characteristics? They are sometimes a really plaintive modality, and then sometimes a chromaticism, which can be either alluring or sometimes it can be really pretty funny. It can have a cocktail music feel to it. I never knew Dr. Sowerby because I began to play the organ in the year of his death, uh, 1968. But I get the feeling that he's what you might have called, especially in old age, a good-natured curmudgeon. But the church music I know is uniformly well-crafted. And in the case of his organ music, it doesn't stray far. When I first heard the symphony many years ago, I didn't understand the first movement well. 
to me, it had the feeling of being a very long Anglican anthem where the choir never came in. I've changed my viewpoint since then, but my experience of Sowerby was totally in the church, so it's only natural I'd think that way. For those who probably played orchestra music or chamber music, it would be a different thing. I just want to reference that story you told earlier, because Francis Crociata, the president of the Leo Sowerby Foundation, who wrote the notes for the Sowerby half of this album, actually opens with a hilarious exchange with one of Sowerby's students, where the student says, Dr. Sowerby, is it true you've written a piece you can't play yourself? Probably referring to either pageant or the second moment of the symphony, both of which we'll talk about. And Sowerby's reply was, I don't know if I can or not, and I don't intend to find out. <laughs> That's very good. I'm, of course been more familiar with Sowerby's instrumental music and orchestral music, because that's what we've recorded. And he's definitely a composer who, in that realm at least, falls very much in what we call the American romantic tradition of composers like Howard Hansen and Samuel Barber, both of whom, by the way, greatly admired Sowerby. In fact, there's a famous letter to Sowerby from Barber, who received a commission for a choral work and wrote to his friend, damn it, Leo, I wish I could write for chorus like you. <laughs> a well-deserved compliment. And actually asked, when I'm next in Chicago, I want you to look at my score and make corrections. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as with the Furco disc, there's a lot of music to get to here. In fact, both CDs in this package are over 79 minutes long. The program opens with a piece that really helped put Sowerby on the map. We heard the beginning of it at the very beginning of this podcast. It's called Comes Autumn Time, and has quite a famous story behind it. Eric Delamarter, who was a conductor of the Chicago Symphony, in fact, briefly was chief conductor of the symphony during World War I when German conductors were out of favor, and Frederick Stock had to go into the background a little bit. So his assistant, Delamarter, conducted a lot of concerts back then. Uh, he was also organist at Fourth Presbyterian and had put a notice in the Chicago Tribune that Sowerby read on a Thursday that Delamarter's recital that weekend was going to include a new commission by Leo Sowerby, which surprised Leo greatly because Eric never actually asked Leo to write the piece. So in the space of one afternoon, he writes one of the great tour de force for the organ, which ended up with the title Comes Autumn Time. And it was so popular at the recital, despite apparently being played with tons of mistakes, because, of course, the organist had no time to learn it, that immediately Sowerby was asked to orchestrate it, and it became a real hit as an orchestra piece, too. Uh, in fact, Frederick Stock actually had the piece played at his funeral alongside Beethoven and Wagner. I did not know that. Yeah. So that gives you an idea. As you heard at the beginning of the podcast, it opens with just, and this is true of the orchestral version too, with just a tremendous burst of color. Can you talk a little bit about this piece and the colors Sowerby brings out? Sure. A little bit like throwing a gigantic boulder into Lake Superior. That's your A major splash. And then he asks for a diminuendo. And again, it's a little bit like Frank, I'd say, is that the incongruity of what's happening in the first couple of pages actually really makes sense. And it's up to the interpreter to communicate that. But Sowerby imagines that the wall of sound that's the full organ, by degrees, can also be seen through. I think that's a nice way to describe it. 
So this piece does indeed have a very leisurely, beautiful middle section. And then it comes back with the opening theme. And that's actually what we're going to hear when the theme returns and then it goes to a really mighty conclusion that shows off the organ. We'll talk about the instrument on the other side of this, but let's hear this now. This is the ending of Comes Autumn Time, 1916 composition by Leo Sowerby, as performed by David Schrader. Well, that was the ending of Comes Autumn Time, the same piece we began this podcast with by Chicago composer Leo Sowerby as performed by David Schrader. Now that we've shown off what this organ can do, we should talk about the instrument. This is the instrument at St. Edith's Catholic Church, which just happens to be located one block from the Sadie office in the Edgewater neighborhood of Chicago. It's an instrument which was originally built in the 1950s by the Wicks Organ Company, finished in 1951 and later restored in the early 2000s by the Howell Organ Company. David, how would you describe this instrument? Another variation of American classic, you know from the sounds all the way from the very loud ones to the fairly audible ones. It has great characteristics of what we call the American symphonic organ, too. And American symphonic organs were organs that were built to serve literature that was largely transcriptions. Of course, it's no accident in the case of Comes Autumn Time, you have a great organ piece which turned into a great orchestra piece. Usually it was the other way around. But it will handle the color changes and the crescendos and diminuendos that you need to be able to do. And it has the added fillip of being in a spectacular acoustic. It's not too reverberant, but it's also not too dry. And if you articulate well, you can make almost anything heard that you need to. Yeah, in fact, I was just going to mention, this is in a much bigger room than the House of Hope Sanctuary. Right. And in fact, it gives you about four seconds of natural reverb, so it really is a spectacular sound. And I can tell you, 
when I was editing this piece to have essentially the St. Ida's organ in my basement was really quite something. I'll bet. <laughs> and now, of course, there were some challenges to making this recording because we did this during the height of, not that we're completely out of it as we're recording this podcast in April of 2021, but we recorded this back in August of 2020 at the height of the pandemic. What were the challenges for you, David, of, of recording during this period when you weren't performing anywhere else, frankly? Well, actually, you know, it, it really kept my nose to the grindstone. I realized at the beginning of summer that in a way, all the free time would be a godsend uh, because Sowerby's music isn't easy. For my way of practicing, I had to drill enough so that I would be confident with it. So in a way, I suppose the unrest and the dry work season caused by the pandemic worked in part to my advantage. We did have a natural disadvantage, <laughs> quite apart from the COVID virus, and this is all the cicadas. We found that we were not masters of nature, and we couldn't start until the cicadas went to bed at 8, which they tended to do. Yeah, in fact, I was just going to mention, when we tested out the organ, it was in the spring during the day, and so we had no idea that in a summer night, these bugs could make so much noise. <laughs> the advantage, actually, of COVID was that this church is actually on a major thoroughfare, Broadway Avenue in Chicago, and we yes. thought we would be contending with a lot of street noise and have to do a lot of retakes, but there was very little traffic in August of 2020 at night. That is right, yeah, and this is another thing that worked to our advantage. But yes, we had quite a surprise that first night when we realized we wouldn't be able to start recording for a full hour after we had planned, and so right. as a result, yeah. our sessions went pretty late into the night, and we're very grateful to St. Ida's for accommodating us in that situation. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, speaking of challenges, can you talk about the opening pedal solo of Pageant? Well, in a way, it reflects a very old tradition. In the 17th century, it was often a practice to begin an organ work, especially on a large registration, with a pedal solo. And strangely enough, the Italians had come late to virtuoso pedaling. And a young organ, well, young at the time, he lived actually to great age, a guy named Fernando Germani, had been one of the Italians that really made up for lost time with pedaling. He had commissioned a piece in 1914, a piece which is, by the way, in my repertoire, and thank God I have a clean live recording of it, by a guy named Raffaele Manari. So a concert at you in Salve Regina. When Sowerby was in Italy on his pre-Rome, he met up with Germani, who said, write me a piece. And the story goes that when Germani read it down, he said, well, now can you write me something hard? <laughs> the Minari and the pageant, it's not so much the opening pedal solo that costs you the most sweat of your brow, but uh, some of the interior sections that sound really limited. And I think that's kind of an irony, like the virtuosity won't always be front and center, but if you listen carefully, it's always an undertone. One thing that makes this piece a little unusual, uh, you mentioned that Sowerby's writing is never easy because he frankly didn't compromise for that purpose, but it was rare that he would write a piece specifically for technical display. No, that's right. He's not about outward display unless it's a contrapuntal skills. But this piece was unique because at the time, Fernando Germani was kind of making waves. He is the first Italian to play the complete organ works of Bach, and he actually got a papal citation that's a positive thing from Pius XII. He toured a lot internationally. 
He wrote a very comprehensive organ method that has frequent instances of scales and arpeggios being played on manuals and pedals simultaneously. You'll really be limber by the time you get through the Germani method for organ. So people can hear just what we're talking about. This is the opening pedal solo of Pageant by Leo Sowerby as performed by David Schrader. You just heard the opening of a piece called Pageant by Chicago composer Leo Sowerby, as performed by David Schrader. Most of that was, as you could clearly hear, on the pedals, and it's what makes this piece famous, if not notorious. And those pedals were of the organ at St. Edith's Catholic Church right here in the Edgewater neighborhood of Chicago. Really spectacular instrument. This is from an album called Organ Music by Frank Furco and Leo Sowerby, two Chicago composers, on CD Records. And if you like what you're hearing, I hope you'll want to check out the full album, which will be released on July 9th. And by the time this podcast is released, it should be available for pre-order. And then it will ship on July 9th, whether you order it from CDRecords.org, C-E-D-I-L-L-E, records.org or amazon.com or archive music on that release date it'll also become available on all the various streaming services you might like to hear whether it's the more popular ones or the more high-end ones it'll be available everywhere and as you can hear this is quite a sound so i would recommend hearing it on cd or on one of those really high definition streaming sites if you can so let's now move on to the next piece on the album, which is Leo Sowerby's Toccata, which is a piece that Sowerby took particular pride in playing during his playing days. What makes this piece such a favorite, David? 
I think it's a wonderful marriage of Sowerby's romanticism and then a steel girder and panel neoclassicism. And it's not as chromatic. It's in a different way than you usually associate with Sowery, but it also has a bold, 100% American sound to it. It also commands much interest. The melodies are interesting, and they're short and easy to grasp, and they also appear in identical sequence many times in the course of the piece, and I think that's what draws an audience to it. Naturally, there's that straightforward head rhythm. And actually, in that way, uh, flowing nature, it reminds me a bit of the piece you played with the Grand Park Orchestra, the concert piece. Yeah, exactly. Its beginning is very much like the concert piece. Well, let's hear that beginning then. This is the first part of Toccata by Leo Sowerby, once again, David Schrader on the St. Ida's organ in Chicago. You just heard the opening part of Leo Sowerby's Toccata for Organ, one of his most popular organ pieces, as performed by David Schrader on a new album of organ music by Leo Sowerby and also Frank Furco. The next piece is the one rarity on at least the physical album. We'll get to why I said physical later. This is a march. It's actually part of Sowerby's Suite for Organ, which is a suite of four movements. Curiously, it's really the middle movements, especially the fantasy for flute stops, that are played more often on organ recitals. This piece, which is the finale, the fourth movement, the march, is not so often performed, which when you hear this, I think will surprise you because I think it's an absolute masterpiece. What would you say about it, David? I'd say the same thing, and it's part masterpiece, and at the same time, kind of a delicious parody. Organists are guilty sometimes of liking to create monster music. And this march has a lot of that characteristics, the key of G minor and the different colors of the organ. And then in the middle, it's kind of like you've hit the eye of a hurricane. A long melody on a reed stop is spun over really quite complex harmony, but then it rushes on to an inexorable finale. I very much enjoyed preparing this piece. It speaks for itself. And like the Furco works we heard earlier, it's a variations format, but unlike Frank's pieces, these variations all flow into each other. Exactly. What they say in the music business is through composed. Let's hear it through to the ending, which is another really big ending. 
to this piece. Anything you want to say about how it ends? Oh, uh, gosh, I'm glad I didn't blow the speaker. <laughs> I know you can handle it, but yeah. it's a wall of sound. I think this is one place where having a room with four seconds of reverb really helps. Yes. All right, well, let's hear that then. This is the end of the march from the Suite for Organ by Leo Sowerby, as performed once again by David Schrader. Well, that was quite a sound, wasn't it? That was the end of the March from the Suite for Organ by Leo Sowerby, one of the many big pieces on this album of music of Leo Sowerby, actually part of a double disc set. The first disc is music of Frank Furco that we heard earlier. But this might be a good time, before we move on to the final piece, the really big piece, to talk about Bill Malone's engineering and capturing of four different instruments in three different rooms. Yes, indeed. This is quite a feat, and Bill's engineering is always superb, so I can imagine it was quite a challenge to set up and to create an environment that would come out as the best product possible. I think it's delightful and, and to hear these different instruments on one album, I think, is terrific. Yeah, you don't have this experience with an orchestra. Well, speaking of something orchestral, in a way, we come to the major work on the program. It's actually 42 minutes long, which makes up over half of this 79-minute disc. It is generally acknowledged as Sour Beesick masterpiece, the Symphony in G Major. David, how long have you been playing this piece? I've been playing the second movement, the Fast and Sinister, for many, many years. I first learned it, I think, gosh, 20 years ago. Uh, no, excuse me, 30 years ago. <laughs> I was later to learn the first movement and the Passacaglia. But I always admired the piece, and I heard one of its original creators, this is the American organist Catherine Crozier, play it in a recital in Indianapolis, and it made a really deep impression on me. And that was when I began to pay attention to the first and the third movements, I was really glad at the time of preparing the recording to have already had the experience of performing Fast and Sinister several times. Yeah, as you note, it's in three movements, and we're actually going to hear bits of all three. 
I should note that all of Sowerby's markings are in plain English. The first movement is very broadly, then what you mentioned, fast and sinister, and then the big Pasacalia that ends the work. That middle movement, fast and sinister, is that something like a rite of passage for American organists? Well, actually, in a way, it's been used. We have different designations in the American Guild of Organists. We have, like, Associate of the American Guild of Organists, that's A-A-G-O, and then we have Fellow of the American Guild of Organists, F-A-G-O. Contrary to popular belief, they do not mean almost a good organist and formerly a good organist. But for the fellowship examination, one year Fast and Sinister was on the list. You have to perform various tasks at the organ, one of which is to play repertoire. And that was when I first really caught a hold of the piece. And then I met a friend who was learning it while I was still an undergraduate. And I thought, wow, what a piece. And then, some years later, I heard one of Sowerby's former students, Robert Rayfield, who's mentioned in the notes, by the way. And Bob Rayfield played Fast and Sinister like a house on fire. It was at that point that I thought, yeah, I really need to look more carefully at the symphony in G major. And this piece really is a symphony with symphonic scope. It actually reminds me in some ways of the actual orchestral symphony of another organist, César Franck. Yes, it's got the three movement structure, a certain unique order of movements. And in fact, that first moment alone is 20 minutes long, and it's got a real arc to it. How do you approach a piece that big? Gosh, trying to follow Sowerby's advice is good. Depending on what kind of organ you have, you can do dynamics in greater or lesser detail. Sowerby is like Cesar Franck hearing the organ as an orchestra. Uh, Franck used to call his church organ at St. Clotilde uh, you know, his orchestra. I think there's a lot of that in uh, Sowerby's piece too. Though interestingly, it's not cyclic in nature, except on some very deep theoretical levels. Unlike Cesar Franck's symphony, where you hear the theme is all the way through. Although, yes, Sowerby does have a way of weaving these things in the counterpoint and whatnot. One interesting thing about this piece is the range of interpretations that I've heard, at least, from different organists. And in fact, very often in his scores, he specifically calls for flexibility. How are you able to interpret the specific markings with the calls for flexibility? Well, in fact, a couple of places are just downright wicked, but they're worthwhile. But there are other places where, like for instance, we did this whole program without a crescendo pedal on the organ. But the fact is, that's the one part of the organ they hadn't fixed yet. Crescendo pedal, for the non-organists who are listening to this, is a device by operating an accelerator-like pedal, you can bring on a succession of stops in an almost seamless order. Sowerby sometimes actually says this in his scores. I had to do this instead by using preset combinations, which required several more motions than just the push of the accelerator or crescendo pedal. But I think that's a compromise that Sowerby expected. And in fact, the person who inspired the symphony, Linwood Farnham, was known to be a compulsive practicer and would approach a church with a requirement of 15 hours minimum practice. And one of the things that he mastered doing was doing all of his registrations by hand when he found that there were not adequate electric aids for that, which was a common thing in Farnham's day. I think Sowerby knew that from experience as an organist. Like so many composers I know, they put in a lot of directions hoping that you'll get what they're trying to say when you put them together. 
Well, that is pretty amazing because there are such tremendous crescendos in this piece. And in fact, what I'd like to do for an excerpt from this gigantic movement is basically pick it up right at the climax. And you can hear the masterful way that Sowerby builds down from that climax. Anything you want to say about this particular section? I think the contrast between G minor and major in this first movement is really magically expressed here. Build down is a wonderful way to refer to it. Great. Well, let's hear that then. This is a section of the first moment of Leo Sowerby's Symphony in G Major for organ, as performed on the St. Ita's organ in Chicago by David Schrader. music you just heard from Chicago composer Leo Sowerby is from his acknowledged masterpiece, the Symphony in G Major. That was from the first movement as performed by David Schrader on an organ in Chicago at St. Edith's Catholic Church. It's part of an album of organ music of Leo Sowerby and also Frank Furco, which we heard earlier on the podcast. The second movement is probably one of the most famous things or notorious uh, that Sowerby ever wrote. The movement is titled simply Fast and Sinister, and the famous quip, we don't know who actually said it, but the famous quip about it is that it's fast for the audience and sinister for the organist. Well, that certainly works out. It's a really unusual piece. It functions as a central scherzo, except usually scherzos are fast in three time, but this piece is in five. It's marked at the top number on the metronome, and so it's you know, 208 to the quarter but it has a wonderful playfulness about it. It's in rondo form, and each time the tune comes back, it's embellished in a certain way, uh, sometimes absolutely with a wicked cascade of note values in procession. The piece has an energy that excels so many organ pieces. And this is another example, uh, I think we also heard this in the march, of Sowerby's uh, penchant for chromaticism. Yes, by all means. Well, and let's hear, we're actually going to hear a short excerpt, and this is one of the more sinister-sounding passages from Fast and Sinister, the second movement of Leo Sowerby's big symphony for organ. (laughs) 
That was a little snippet of Fast and Sinister. That's the title of the movement, the second movement of Leo Sowerby's Three Movement Symphony for Organ, as performed by David Schrader on the St. Edith's Church organ in Chicago. Organ originally built by the Wicks Company in 1951 and restored and enhanced by Howell Organ Company in 2003. Now we move to the third moment. While Leo Sowerby wrote many Pasicalias, if somebody refers to the Pasicalia, this is probably what they mean. And in fact, it's the piece that when Sowerby decided to write the symphony, he actually started with this, the third moment Pasicalia, and I think because it's a form that he is just so fond of. Uh, we're going to hear the ending of this in a moment. Uh, can you talk about how David Sowerby uses the Pasicalia form to build to this great climax. It's a daring move because you usually associate a finale, especially of a big piece, with something that is on the fast and loud side. And Sowerby actually has basically two climaxes requiring a build up and a build down. And in it, myself, I hear in each variation different aspect of American music. It has things that are playful, it has things that are very dark in a way. Particularly beautiful place is after the first climax, and it comes in and it's only a three-voice texture. But the solo colors are aided and abetted by the constantly moving pedal line. And then as you become increasingly familiar with the Pasacaglia and you're building up for the second time, for the second climax, he then breaks up the pedal part more in some places with large leaps, and then finally places the tune sometimes in the tenor voice. And this would mean you're playing with two voices in the pedal. And as I mentioned, it builds to a really thunderous ending, and that's what we'll hear right now. This is the ending of the great symphony in G major for organ by Leo Sowerby, once again as performed by David Trader. You just heard the end of the symphony in G major, the last moment being a Pasacaglia. A uh, really huge sound there to end not only this piece, but also this two CD set of organ music by Frank Furco and Leo Sowerby as performed by David Schrader. But it's not necessarily the end of the album if you're listening online because we actually did record another work, a very late Sowerby work, in fact, a world premiere of Leo Sowerby's two sketches from 1963. 
And these works don't appear on the two CD set, which as I mentioned, both CDs are already over 79 minutes. But if you get this as a download or go to stream the album, you can find these last two pieces. They're two sketches. First movement is titled Nostalgic and the second Fancy Free. And they are very contrasting pieces. In fact, Nostalgic is a rare, in fact, until recently, it was thought possibly to be unique use of a tone row by Sowerby, but a enterprising student actually found a chaconne, a very early piece that also used a, a tone row. But in any case, it's a very rare use of a tone row by Leo Sowerby in a very atmospheric sounding piece. And then it's contrasted with Fancy Free. So what was it like uh, learning these contrasting pieces, David? Trickier than I thought. There are very wide intervallic stretches that you have to do in Nostalgic, but the uh, registrations are less complex than Sowerby usually is. In Fancy Free, how do you say a plant you thought you were going to sit on that turned out to be a cactus? <laughs> oh, and I understand what he's trying to say, but the notes themselves are very counterintuitive. It's in a kind of a jazzy style, but it has harmonies you definitely don't expect. And all the while, it has to have the characteristics of its title. You know, it has to sound fancy-free, but actually in its composition, it's very clever and, you know, sort of nothing of the kind. What I find is interesting, though, is that they're in the relative keys of D minor and F major. And for all those expecting a tone roll in the manner of the second Viennese school, Sour Beat totally doesn't use it that way. <laughs> fancy-free lives for me, and I wonder if this is part of Sowerby's thought in the title in the world of Leonard Bernstein of On the Town era. Yes, I think that's right. And yeah, Bernstein would be doing some of his big theater pieces right then. So we're going to do a little sweet here. We're going to hear the beginning, less than a minute each, but we'll hear the beginning of Nostalgic and then flow that right into the ending of Fancy Free so that you can hear how these pieces contrast. Once again, of course, the organist is David Trader.
You just heard sketches of two sketches by Leo Sowerby. It's a late work from 1963. This is its world premiere recording. The first sketch titled Nostalgic, the second titled Fancy Free. We heard the beginning of the first and the ending of the second there. This is part of a recording of organ music of Frank Furco and Leo Sowerby. This part is only available in online versions of the album, downloads or streams, because the two discs that make up the two CD set are each almost 80 minutes long, and we did not have room for these pieces on the CD. But this is a real Sowerby rarity, so I do encourage people to find a way of listening to these pieces. And now that people have heard excerpts of just about everything, what would you like them to take away from the Sowerby program as a whole? Gosh. For me, it was an in-depth introduction to a style of music I wasn't quite familiar with, but I found each time I recorded Sowerby, like with CD and the Grand Park Symphony, with concert piece, that I warmed to the task and really uh, became a champion of Sowerby myself in the process. Well, I think a lot of people have had that experience. As I mentioned, he's one of those composers who was tremendously popular in the 20s and 30s among American orchestras, won the Pulitzer Prize in the 40s, and then as the more, shall we say, academic composers kind of held sway, his music fell more out of favor. Partly it's his own fault for leaving horrible performing editions, or really no performing editions, basically just leaving manuscripts of a lot of his pieces yeah. that now have to be resurrected and performing editions made. And we've been trying to help here at CD by getting some of this music recorded. In fact, this is the middle album in what we're calling our Summer of Sowerby, our June, July, and August 2021 releases on CD all contain music of Sowerby and some real rarities, especially on our August release, uh, which will include works that Sowerby wrote for the Paul Whiteman Orchestra on commission at the same time and for the same tour as George Gershwin wrote Rhapsody in Blue in the mid-1920s. So some really fascinating stuff there and just another example of the many different styles that Sowerby could write in while at the same time there's something about his music, I think a harmonic language, that you still know it's Sowerby. I agree with that. I think you always know the best composer's voices when you hear them for the first time. As I noted, we recorded this album in August of 2020. Sowerby half of this album, I should say. So besides recording that, how have you been dealing with the COVID crisis and the lack of public performances over the past year plus? Well, I want to say that the recording was one of the things that really kept me alive during this time. And because I've had gigs that are far and few between. Though I do have a Bach harpsichord concerto coming up at Bach week on May 21st. Oh, wonderful. That's going to be really my re-entry into uh, public music making. And, uh, you know, we'll see what comes after that because I'm also retiring from Roosevelt University. And so I'm going to have a lot more time to play well, I hope we'll have a chance to hear you play more often. That's terrific. Since we mentioned the pandemic, I wanted to ask you, as I've been asking our guests on these podcasts lately, what artistic responses to the pandemic and the concurrent racial justice crisis have you found the most inspiring? And I will note that we're recording this just a day after the George Floyd verdict in the Chauvin trial was announced. Well, I think in our day and time right now, there is a lot to be encouraged about say this publicly, we couldn't tolerate a repeat of the last four years. But I've noticed the remarkable ways that people have come together, both for social justice and then sometimes abetting social justice by performances online and a whole new world of communication. 
And I would actually note that some Sadie artists, among them clarinetist Anthony McGill and violinist Jennifer Coe, have really been in the forefront of those kind of things. Yes, they have. Absolutely. Someone has said the nature of great art is limitation. And I think many people are making the best use possible. And I hope that we, just as human beings in general, take these positive signs as a way for us to continue to act. Well, you mentioned the May 21st performance uh, with Bach Week in Evanston, which by the time this podcast is released may actually be in the past. But what else is coming up for you, especially in the fall season, as things we hope will be really opening up? Ah, Trio Settecento is playing a concert. We're very glad to get our agent active on this, and we have some contracts that we're looking at right now. That's terrific. And that, of course, is your trio, as mentioned earlier, with violinist Rachel Barden-Pine. All CD artists. And John Mark Rosendahl on cello or viola da gamba, depending on the piece. I always like to end these podcasts with a question, and you certainly have quite a perspective on this, on what makes the Chicago scene so special. And even though we've been talking about an album of 20th century and contemporary music, I'd actually like to go back and get your take on how Chicago's early music scene that you've been so involved in has evolved over the last few decades. Great question. You know, for right now, even though not much is live, we're very well served by groups like Third Coast Baroque. Of course, the Newberry Concert. They were founded in 1982, and I played the first concert. They have persisted with some very imaginative ideas. Unfortunately, the idea of a Baroque orchestra, independent of anything else, has never really taken off, though there have been some fine, fine examples. You know, the city music and Baroque band, etc. I see that, on the other hand, Baroque opera is very strong in the being of the Haymarket Opera Company. And there, they combine an excellent Baroque orchestra and not just historically informed music, but also historically informed costumes, stage gesture, conventions, sets, and things like that. A couple of years ago, they performed an opera by Marin Marais. Those of you who remember the movie called Tous les Matins du Monde, remember it's about the 17th century viola da gamba player. And he left us an opera, a real lyric tragedy, which Haymarket Opera did a couple of years ago in a full stage production that was absolutely grand. I've never thought in my lifetime I'd see a production of a French lyric tragedy in my own city. And so I think the pluck of Chicago musicians, pun intended, I guess, if they're guitarists, is something that I've always been impressed with, and the musical community in Chicago has always been kind to me. Well, that's a really nice way to end. So thank you, David, for doing this podcast and for the really tremendous performances on this double album of organ music by Frank Furco and Leo Sowerby, and a reminder that Sadie Records is able to put out unique recordings like this and support the wonderful Chicago artists we record because Sadie is a non-profit label sustained by the patronage and charitable support of our listeners. So thank you for your donations and your purchases directly from the Sadie website at sadierecords.org, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. This has been another Classical Chicago podcast from Sadie Records. Thank you so much for listening.